Hello, and welcome to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I'm your host, Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I've got a couple of different topics I want to hit today, and uh, I'm just going to dump right into it, jump right into it. Uh, first one is to new beginnings. Uh, this week I started a new job with a new company, new field, and that meant a new truck, new tools, new laptop software, uh, new territory, uh, new technology to play with as an automation and measurement technician in oil and gas, and uh, new people to meet and figure out and develop relationships with, uh, new challenges and opportunities. Uh, you know, it's really exciting for my family and I, and uh, I don't know exactly uh, how to feel about it just yet. It feels, I don't know, weird. Um, I think it's a really good opportunity. The, the pay is right, and the job description is right, and I like who I'm going to be working with. But uh, who knows? I mean, God willing, we'll live and do this or that. You kind of have to leave the door open to you know things developing and you have to take it as it comes it's it's hard to know with new ventures exactly what to expect they keep you on your toes and uh yeah i suppose that's that's part of the enjoyment of them but uh so far this week my first week uh i've gotten home early uh much earlier than what I had been, and by that I mean, you know, a good one to three hours on average earlier than what I had been getting home at with my previous job, and uh, that's been nice. You know, I was talking with a coworker of mine who also <clears throat> just started this week, and uh, he said he got home one day, and one of his kids was like, "Why are you here? Did you get fired?" And, uh, no, he didn't. Um, it just, you know, it's a better schedule. Start earlier, get home earlier or start at the same time, get home earlier. I've actually been home before sunset almost every day this week. And the uh, one day that I wasn't home by sunset, the reason was I was waiting for my new company pickup to come in. Uh, you know, that compared with before where, you know, more often than not, I'd be getting home after the sun had gone down and, uh, just kind of jumping in the shower real quick as dinner is just about to be put on the table. Now it's, uh, looking like I'll be home and kind of interacting with the kids and Lauren for a couple hours before she even starts dinner. And I'm sure that'll help with everybody's uh, happiness and stress levels and uh, just general work-life balance. And it's funny, somebody was talking here this week, I can't remember who it was, but they said, you know, 12 hours, man, it just really wears on you. Yeah, can't do that forever. And I was just thinking to myself, man, yeah, 12 hours seems like not very much compared with what 
I have been putting in a lot of times uh, over the past two years. You know, it's been pretty uncommon for me to put in a 40 hour work week. Some weeks were 80, 90 hours a week. You know, I would say more often I was working 60 or 70 hours, but to a lot of the working world, 50 hours a week sounds like it's really eating into their uh, life, you know, the rest of what happens outside of their occupation. And I feel like after two years of working so much that I didn't have a life, that uh, now I've got a little bit of a, oh, I, not very conversational um, range of topics unless I'm reading something. You know, it's like I, if I'm reading something, I'm good, and the rest is not firsthand. It's, it's life happening outside of my experience as I'm working. And I could tell people, oh, I heard about this, or my kids and my wife are doing this, but I had to work. Um, and that gets so old. That really just does wear on you. Uh, for a time to make ends meet, to take care of business, uh, to get through, uh, you know, projects or, or whatever to meet deadlines. Maybe that's a, not the worst thing ever, but you can't settle into a life of working 70, 80 hours a week, especially not with family and church and the rest of life outside of work. So I'm excited about this. Uh, the pay will be such that I'm not hurting to work fewer hours, which is great. I don't know if they're going to let me work <laughs> uh, too many hours on account of the pay. But, you know, the nice thing is there, too, that, you know, when you're being paid more and you work the same amount of hours, uh, you know, 60, 70 hours, then... Uh, you know, it's easier to, to put up with it for uh, a span of time and have a good attitude about it because you know it's going to be profitable. Uh, but there's nothing or few things, I'll say that. I won't say there's nothing worse. There are few things worse than working extremely hard and then feeling like you're not getting a return on your investment. You're just uh, whittling away at your time here on earth when you're being used, that, that's an awful feeling. I can speak from personal experience. Um, now I don't say that to uh, throw shade on my previous employer or what I was doing necessarily. Uh, you know, I think in the context of learning and getting experience, building my resume, that uh, you know, my previous job was a really good thing and uh, I don't think that that is an unfair way to characterize it I think I'm being gracious to say it was a resume builder and I don't think that's uh, you know uh, oh, an unscrupulous or, or uh, shady thing to have uh, approached the job uh, as if I was building my resume because I still worked hard while I was there, but I, you know, it's kind of like they say with fast food, um, 
to a lesser extent, but still true. You know, that, you know, the people that are clamoring for a higher minimum wage, they say, well, I can't live on what I'm making at Burger King and McDonald's. And uh, one of the responses I've heard that I think makes a lot of sense is you shouldn't be planning on staying at McDonald's and Burger King long term. That should be a temporary short term job. And then you move on from that to uh, something like a career. Uh, you know, that's that. And honestly, that's how you get wages to rise. You know, I was talking with a class here. I was in with my two uh, co-workers here at the new job venture. And they're two former co-workers from the previous job venture. We all came over to Newfield at the same time from ZI. And uh, we were talking in this defensive driving class in Williston yesterday, Train ND does a great job, by the way, at offering safety training and technical training there in Williston, North Dakota. But we were talking about the history of the area and activity levels and what it's been like and how crazy Walmart was. And they would just put pallets of groceries in the middle of aisles and you'd have to come and pick things off the pallets because they couldn't hire people to unload the pallets uh, fast enough to keep up with how many people were coming in getting groceries and uh, so they couldn't keep things on the shelves and they couldn't hire and retain people because anybody with a work ethic was out working in the oil patch and you know the the, the instructor who's lived in North Dakota most of her life. She's a native. She said, you know, at one point Walmart was paying $21 an hour. Entry level, just come and unload pallets and put them on the dadgum shelves. And uh, $21, can you imagine that? And all the people that are clamoring for higher minimum wage, they're not thinking in terms of let the market dictate a wage that's livable like that. Uh, they're thinking in terms of, well, the government just needs to tell Walmart, you pay your people $15 an hour. It doesn't work that way. Supply and demand. The economy locally has to support that. The employers need to need employees that badly and need to be able to make enough money to support hiring employees for that wage and paying them that. But anyway, it was interesting to me uh, hearing that conversation and thinking about how I started with ConocoPhillips uh, getting close to seven years ago now. Came back in 2012, early 2012. And they interviewed me once through Wood Group Pack, and then they interviewed me through ConocoPhillips uh, local management. And when I got the phone call offering me the job, the production supervisor said, hey, unfortunately, all I'm going to be able to offer you is $23 an hour. I'm sorry. Is that enough? And I said, you bet it is. Absolutely. You know, I, I tried to contain my enthusiasm, but before that, the most I had ever made per hour in an hourly job was $10 an hour. So 23 sounded like 
unreal. That's, are you serious? You can only pay me $23 an hour. Heck yeah. I am coming to work for you. Uh, salary wise, the most I'd ever earned was $35,000 a year. That was the last job that I had in Ohio before moving out to Montana and North Dakota. And I was just giddy to make $23 an hour. Then it went up from there. And uh, when oil prices crashed and when Conoco closed their Sydney office, I opted for a layoff. And I was assuming that with my experience that it would be easier to find uh, another job quickly than it was. But, uh, you know, supply and demand again. You know, wages went back down when the demand for labor went down. Uh, prices of everything went down. Prices of uh, groceries and uh, other commodities, the cost of rent and homes to buy went down. Uh, everything got less expensive when activity levels in the area uh, receded. Now things are picking up again. I've got this great new job. And I have to keep in mind that uh, these things go up and down. And I need to be thinking long term, not getting caught up in the excitement of the moment. That was one piece of advice that everybody that had been in oil and gas for any amount of time told me. The last go, as I was new and I was just flush with all this money, they said, don't go spending it on things that you can't afford, buying a big expensive boat and motorcycle and cars and trucks and everything. You know, you save your money because this isn't going to last forever. Be ready for when it drops. And uh, I thought I was pretty conservative. I know I was way more conservative than a lot of guys were. But I suppose the way that I splurged was that I had a few more children and uh, – we bought our first home in Sydney, Montana, in uh, an inflated market. And uh, so there was that and the, the associated costs that go with. But uh, God willing, we'll live and do this or that. You know, Unless the Lord builds a house, laborers labor in vain. The workers labor in vain. And unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Uh, if he desires that we will prosper, we will prosper, regardless of the market conditions, regardless of other people's ambitions or their schemes or their blind spots or whatever. And regardless of mine, if he desires that we will succeed, we will succeed. And I will just try to be faithful and do a good job and be circumspect. And uh, I pray right now for discretion and wisdom as things are starting off to get them started off on the right foot. And uh, to, to strike the right balance of, you know, not being so, uh, oh, what's the word? I, I, you know, I, somebody was telling me about a, a job that they had where they just set the pace too uh, fast for themselves. They set the bar too high for themselves when they first started out, and it wasn't sustainable. And it made me think about the difference between sprinters and marathon runners and they had started off a new position sprinting and then the employer came to expect a sprint and when they became fatigued then it was like well hey what's what's going on here 
are you doing? Are you slacking? It's like, well, wait a second. No, I mean, I think it was an unrealistic pace that I was setting before. So, you know, just along similar lines with this new venture, I want to uh, make sure I'm, I'm setting a realistic pace. But uh, I had a, an interesting experience this week with my first week on the new job, and I hope it doesn't uh, hurt me. Uh, and I hit a deer on my way to my first safety meeting. And the irony is that the safety topic was distracted and winter driving. And here it is, you know, I've got pictures of the, the front end of this rental pickup I was driving, all banged up, the headlight on the driver's side busted, the bumper bent, the hood bent. You can see the curtain airbags inside the cab on both sides are deployed and hanging there. And uh, in the picture I took of this buck laying by the side of the road with uh, one antler missing and blood in the snow, you can tell that it's winter. And uh, I think he was apparently distracted as he uh, rose from the ditch on the opposing lane. And uh, it was before sunrise. I was thinking about this new safety meeting, the new job and everything, and he just walked right into my headlight as I was driving, oh, I don't know, about 60, 70 miles an hour. And uh, that was a, a new experience for me, airbags deploying, um, not one I would care to repeat ever. Um, that's scary. You know, the engine has a feature in these newer trucks where it will uh, shut off. I guess it's triggered by the same mechanism that deploys the airbags, but uh, that is to protect against uh, fire, explosion, what have you. And so the engine shut off. I had to steer the vehicle to the side of the road, and uh, my cab was filled with dust. I thought it was smoke at first, but it was dust that uh, had come out with the deployment of the airbags. And it uh, I don't know, maybe it's... Uh, something to do with keeping them from uh, sticking to one another, something like that, you know, chalk like uh, gymnasts use to, to chalk their hands. But uh, in any event, it was all over the cab and uh, kind of had me coughing and I, I didn't really care for it. It was a little bit of an irritant, but uh, the truck asked me, it sensed that there had been a problem, a, a, an issue, asked me if I was okay, and it asked if I wanted it to call 911, or it, it basically said, I'm, we're calling 911, uh, tell us if you want us to stop and cancel it. And I'm just like, I don't know if I want you to stop or cancel, I'm just going to, like I was just trying to assess the situation, and it called 911, and so I talked with them, they said it wasn't reportable, called my uh, co-workers who were at the safety meeting waiting for it to start told them I wasn't going to be able to make it on account of my situation uh, one of them my friend J.R. Bagwell left to come pick me up I, uh, I called our account manager called the rental company <clears throat> it just uh, it, it kind of was not a, a great start to uh, the day uh, <laughs> um, you know, I trust there too God willing we'll live and do this or that and God's sovereign, and he knew that deer was going to step out in front of me. I didn't. 
if I had, I would have uh, missed it somehow, some way. But, uh, you know, it's funny. I I left the deer by the side of the road. I, I knew where he was at and uh, hopped in with JR, got all my stuff transferred over. <coughs> Excuse me. Hmm. Transferred over. <clears throat> and uh, here I've been deer hunting this year. Uh, just like last season, the season before that. And I'm looking at this buck and I'm just disgusted. I'm just thinking, man, I would have shot this buck if I had seen him out in the woods someplace hunting any of the three or four times that I've been hunting. I'd have shot him and, uh, and gladly and taken him home and, and posed a picture with him. And, uh, here it is. I, I've just hit him with my truck. He's dead, deader than dead. But, uh, you know, I kept rolling with JR and, and then I rode around with James Carlson with Newfield and got to see how he works with uh, the automation there and what his processes are. And at the end of the day, uh, I got, you know, he dropped me off at home in Sydney. I walk in the front door, my kids are all. Hey, where's the meat? Are you are you bringing home deer? And I'm thinking, man, you know, it's such a shame to leave that buck by the side of the road, leave the meat to waste. And uh, I should, I should, maybe I should go back and and see what meat I can salvage. And so I, I tell my wife, hey, I'm gonna go see what I can do. Grab my hunting bag with my knife and uh, grab some trash bags and hop in our van, our 12 passenger van, cause I don't have a truck and start heading that way. And, uh, you know, on the way I called JR and I told him what I was doing and cause we had tried to talk earlier and got cut off with my drive going through a, a little, uh, dead spot for cell service. And uh, I, I'm talking with him and he says, Oh, are you sure the meat's still good? You didn't gut it. He didn't get that deer this morning and it got, you know, fairly warm and it's been out there all day, you know, 12 hours probably by this point. And I said, well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's not, you know, cause every time I've been hunting and we've gotten a deer, you, you gut it immediately as soon as possible. And that gets the temperature of the body dropping and, and you know, helps to preserve the meat. And, uh, I knew it was cool. You know, it stayed, you know, 40 degrees or so all day and it was 30 ish when I first hit the deer and he had a few hours before I started warming up. And so I was like, well, I don't know, maybe I'll just get out there and I'll see, I'll, I'll find out. And, uh, so then I call North Dakota highway patrol and ask them, Hey, what's the process for salvaging a, a roadkill deer? And, uh, they say, oh, well, we'll have a, a highway patrolman come out there. He'll give you a call. So the highway patrol calls me. I tell him what I'm thinking of doing and tell him about hitting the deer in the morning. And here it is, you know, mid-afternoon. He says, oh, are you sure the meat's still good? I said, well, I don't know. Maybe not. And uh, so I, he's like, well, I'll, br I'll bring you a salvage tag. You can decide what you want to do. And. And uh, so I get out there, I'm waiting for the highway patrol officer to show up 
get my bag out, drag the deer off to a spot where it should be, you know, pretty okay. It's away from the road a little ways and I uh, got my trash bags and everything. And I'm just looking at, it. I'm getting set up and situated and I'm thinking about getting started and I'm looking at the time and it's Wednesday. So we've got a wana and I've got the van and I'm needing to do this quickly and efficiently and get home. And I'm just thinking, you know what, like I could get all messy, get this deer cut up right now by the side of the road, everybody driving by and watching me do it. And, uh, and then get home late and have to clean up and my wife and kids are late to Awana and then that creates stress and at the end of it all might have to throw away the meat anyway it might not be good uh, because I didn't gut it first thing and so I I don't know just two in a row 100% two out of two the people that I talked with about harvesting this deer commenting with are you sure the meat's still good it kind of turned me off to to even trying it so i just packed up my stuff and waited for the officer i told him i said nah, i just i don't have a good feeling about it decided to pass and uh so anyway that was that didn't harvest the deer <clears throat> did uh total my rental pickup it wasn't my uh actual work truck that i'm gonna have moving forward it was just a, a rental temporarily for the week and then the following evening, actually, my, my new permanent work truck arrived from Colorado. It's got the island operating logo on the side, and uh, it's got a toolbox in the back, and it's got a big uh, brush guard, grill guard <clears throat> mounted on the front in place of the bumper, the, uh, the stock bumper. And, uh, you know, if I had hit that deer with that thing, probably would have had a, a much different experience probably wouldn't have done nearly so much damage <clears throat> but it is what it is and uh again you know god willing we'll live and do this or that he knows he's watching and i'll just trust myself to him on a related note i'd like to talk about the book i'm reading right now meat eater by stephen ranella and uh, how it pertains to uh, the hunting experience and hitting a deer and so many other things. So for those that haven't watched or aren't familiar, there's a gentleman by the name of Steve Ranella who has this show on Netflix called Meat Eater. And I think it was last hunting season. I was elk hunting with my friends Jeff Jorgensen and Leif Halverson. And Leif is a educated uh person and uh, we like talking about books and uh, he's a historical reenactor actually at fort union where he uh portrays mid eight no what mid 18 no mid 19th century fur trapping something like that um uh, sorry Leif. in any event we're talking about hunting and whatnot and he says hey have you guys ever seen this show meat eater he says, my kids are watching it. I can't get enough of it. It's really great. You guys should check it out. And uh, so I, I did. I came home. Uh, I don't think I watched any of it. Didn't even look it up for quite a while. And then I saw it in the, you know, what's trending now 
uh, section on Netflix one day and said, you know, we should check that out. So we watched an episode. It was great. It was really, really good. Uh, it was, you know, it fit in nicely with, you know, what I've been trying to teach my kids uh, about hunting and what I've been wanting to teach them. But a lot of things that I don't personally know. And, you know, my son Daniel, especially, he loves watching hunting shows. But they're repetitive. Where you know, a guy goes out, he's looking for a monster buck, monster elk, monster moose, monster caribou. And it, everything is like overly dramatized and hyped up. And you feel like it's an inside joke uh, if you're not an experienced hunter. And there's a lot of things that they just take for granted. They don't stop and explain this is what we're doing and this is why. And uh, this meat eater show, though, it's just the opposite. It's very accessible. It's like an introduction to hunting for those that aren't familiar. And it's almost philosophical and spiritual. He's talking about hunting as a lifestyle. And uh, so we watched several episodes of that. And last year, we even watched an episode while we were eating venison that my wife had just cooked up. Uh, from one of the deers that I shot last year and uh, deers deer I think that's correct the plural of deers deer isn't it anyway but uh, you hear fast forward to this year and hunting season starts up again and so we started watching the show again and I posted some picture of my family eating and watching the show or my kids watching the show and you know, me getting ready, getting my gear ready to go hunting. And uh, my friend Life, he commented on Facebook and he says, hey, have you checked out his book? It's really good. I'm listening to it right now. And so I did. You know, Life is batting a thousand so far on good recommendations and uh, used one of my Audible credits, downloaded Steve Rinella's book by the same name as the Netflix show. And uh, I'm maybe halfway through right now, um, at least a third, and uh, really enjoying it. It's very interesting. But it reminds me of uh, another book that uh, I was asked to read. I actually had a complimentary copy of it sent by my friend Bobby McPherson. Uh, it's a Roger Scruton book, and the title is On Hunting. And uh, in his book as well, it doesn't seem as though you're really learning as much about hunting first and foremost or exclusively in terms of you know technical skills it's not a manual but it is a and it's not even really a philosophical treatise so much as hey this is uh at least as far as i read on hunting and as long as far as i've read meat eater it's more of a you know here's my personal experience with hunting and here's how I feel about it and here's why I hunt and why it's attractive to me. And here's actually my life story. And I can explain to you more in depth how it fits in, how everything ties together. And, uh, you know, in, in Steve Rinella's meat eater, uh, he talks at one point and my eldest son, this is his first year hunting. He has a, he went through hunter safety. He's got a tag and, uh, you know, we were listening to the start of this book on our way to go hunting for the first time. And uh, on the drive from Sydney to Savage to meet up with our pastor, 
who we were going to go out with to a couple of spots that we I've hunted with him for the last two years. Uh, Rinella <clears throat> uses uh, the biblical example of Jacob and Esau. <clears throat> you have these two brothers, twin brothers, uh, sons of uh, Isaac. <clears throat> and one is a hunter and the other one is kind of a homeboy. He's an, more of an agricultural uh, likes to stay in the tent, likes to stay close to his mother, sort of a character. Esau likes to go out and he's a, a wild man, a strong, uh, independent uh, hunter. He goes out and he, he gets animals and he brings them home and he cooks them up for his dad. And his dad loves that. And so Esau is his father's favorite. And Jacob is his mother's favorite. But uh, Jacob tricks Esau out of his birthright and his blessing. and ultimately is the one through whom uh, Israel and the Jews are descended. And he, you know, he, Jacob ends up having his name changed. If you follow the story further into Genesis, he gets renamed by God Israel uh, because he wrestles with God, actually, at one point. The angel of the Lord, probably Jesus, actually, funny story, more on that later, uh, shows up and Jacob wants a blessing from him too, you know? <laughs> um, anyway, but Renella, he's talking about Jacob and Esau doing this compare and contrast. And he's kind of waxing eloquent about it. Uh, I don't really agree with the point he was making, or I'm not sure I do anyways. It's food for thought that the Bible seems to favor Jacob and being a homebody and being civilized over being a wild man out there in the wilderness hunting game. Um, or that it's maybe implied in the narrative a little bit. Uh, and then Ranella you know, uses that as kind of a, uh, shall we say, um, a vignette into the way that human culture has developed, even though Meat-eating and hunting has been a core part of the human experience for as long as we have any history of human beings. Uh, you know, as we've become more civilized in modern times, more removed from living a rural lifestyle and having farms and having to live off the land, uh, hunting is less and less of a fashionable thing for which people have a desire, an appetite, or the skill set, you know how to do it, uh, or even tolerant of other people doing it. You know, increasingly, you have this phenomenon where someone posts a picture of some animal that they've shot. They're proud of their first and maybe only Africa hunt or South American hunt, or you know they go to some remote place they've never been and they shoot some big majestic animal and they're going to bring it back for meat and trophies and they take a picture and they post it online and the hate and the murderous comments that are thrown around online is uh it's ridiculous so you know you imagine 200 years ago uh <laughs> as people were more familiar with the process of uh 
you know, life. Where does your food come from? You know, this hamburger didn't just make itself. It wasn't just, you know, growing on a hamburger tree out there. Uh, the meat didn't spring up from the ground. Uh, it was on a cow up until relatively recently. Somebody had to go kill that cow and butcher it <clears throat> and turn it into hamburger for you before you could have your nice uh, Big Mac or Whopper with cheese. You know, I, that comes full circle to part of why I want to get into hunting, why I have gotten into hunting. I don't know why I say that as if it's a, a future thing. Um, I am. I'm, I've become a hunter. And uh, I'm still in the, the phase where I'm trying to learn and I'm trying to acquire skills. And it seems like there is so much to learn. And everybody that I go out hunting with, I learn a little bit from. You know, I see how they approach it or their attitude or some of their tips and tricks or some of their gear or some of their, you know, uh, habits. And uh, I learn a little bit more each time I go, even if I don't come away with an animal, come home with an animal. But I want to finish out this season harvesting uh, at least a couple of deer. Last year we got two. I got two. This year I'd like to get two more. Uh, I actually have three tags myself. Josiah's got one. If I at least fill one and Josiah at least fills one, and we have two deer, that will be great. If I can fill all three of mine and he can fill his one, that will be great. Uh, four deer will be lots of meat to process. And uh, actually later this morning, here in oh, about two and a half hours, uh, my son and I will uh, leave out. We're going to go meet up with uh, Butch. Again, our pastor <clears throat> there in Savage, he's got a place in Circle that he actually went hunting last weekend and uh, bagged his biggest ever buck uh, in terms of, uh, I think in terms of both meat and antlers, uh, biggest by six inches. He was pretty tickled about that. Apparently there are many more deer out there. Uh, where we're going to be going will be Circle, Montana. And uh, it's somebody that he knows. He's gotten permission to hunt on their private land. And they have uh, a deer problem. And we're going to try and help them with the deer problem there. The deer are killing their trees and they don't want that. So we're going to come thin out the, the herd a little bit. Hopefully come home with some meat. <clears throat> but uh, next weekend, you know, I've been extended an invitation to go hunting with uh, the husband of one of my wife's friends and our families have been getting together and our kids get along really well. And I don't know him real well, but uh, he seems like a nice guy and they're a really sweet family. And, uh, you know, I guess he's got a, a, well, he does quite a bit of hunting. So he's somebody I've never hunted with and I'm looking forward to learning more uh, as I go hunting with him and uh, seeing, you know, how is it that he approaches it? What gear does he have and how does he set up? and what's his tactic you know how does he plan out the hunt where does he hunt you know why does he hunt um, you know i'm fascinated by psychologically and spiritually <clears throat> what the effect of hunting is and uh, i think the effect is uh, a greater confidence you know um much greater if you actually get <laughs> an animal uh versus if you 
are just out there hiking around and, and never come home with anything. So far this year, I've been unsuccessful. But um, even there, I mean, it's a practical uh, exercise. You know, there's people that all year long, they go to the gym religiously and they hike on a treadmill and all they got was exercise. And that was legitimate. You know, uh, if I come away from three uh, hunting trips with nothing but exercise, okay, you know, then I guess I'm at least trying a little bit more to be practical than the people that just jump on a treadmill all year, um, I think, anyway. But uh, I will confess the one thing that is still uh, the most difficult for me is the initial uh, field dressing, gutting the deer. That initial cut from, I mean, and, and shooting it, no problem, especially from a distance. Now, if I had to jump on it with a knife and, and kill it that way, that'd be a little bit more difficult. But shooting it's no problem. Uh, dragging it to the truck, loading it up, no problem. Hanging it up, uh, skinning it, quartering it, no problem. Uh, what is difficult is the initial gutting process for me. And uh, getting over my squeamishness is, is one of the other things that, you know, in addition to putting meat on the table and getting these skills and learning so that I can teach my children, uh, teach my sons. I've, I have six sons. And those six sons, that you know, if I can teach them to hunt, then we can put a lot of meat on the table. And if they get good enough, we could put meat on not only our table, but we could put meat on other people's tables as well. And so I'm trying to have the longer view. Each individual hunt doesn't have to be uh, a roaring success. I don't have to come home with trophies. I'm in it for meat. I want meat. You know, if I come home with a good buck at some point, okay, great, cool. But, um, you know, if my sons can learn to hunt, be skillful at it, if we can get the skills that we need to be effective and we can come home with uh, several animals a year and I can teach them how to process them, how to uh, skin them, how to quarter them, how to butcher the meat, turn it into food, then uh, I think we will have a, uh, a good investment a good return on investment rather for uh, the time and money it's taken to uh, get set up. But we'll see, you know, not all my sons are interested and that's okay. Uh, you know, I, I don't knock that Solomon. Uh, I think he's a little bit more of a sensitive soul and uh, he's not really excited about hunting. He's just telling me up front, even before I offer, he says, I don't think I'm ever going to want to be a hunter. Okay. That's fine. Would you go with us? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you would hike around with us and help carry gear and, uh, and have the binoculars out and help us spot, help us look for deer. You know, if you would help with dragging that deer out, if we get something and we can't just load it right into the truck up, the, the, the truck or the pickup right where we dropped it. Uh, you know, if you'd help with that kind of stuff, Man, that'd be great. Because it's all part of the process. If we could approach it as a team, that's great. You know, 
And if you're just getting out, getting fresh air, and you're helping us look for animals, helping us to be strategic, maybe even helping to, to flush them, to drive them towards somebody who's set up in a spot, awesome. You know, but uh, anyway. You know, one last thing I want to talk about, <clears throat> and then I'll wrap up this uh, recording. And uh hope it's not a, a too much of a sharp uh, change of topic from uh, my new job, hunting, butchery, etc. But uh, the election happened. So the last podcast episode I recorded... I said it was it was happening that day. I think it was election day when I recorded it. And this episode, you know, we are what? Week and a half past the election. And uh, it seems to me, not having followed politics nearly as much this go around as I did prior to the 2016 election, It seems to me that Democrats committing election fraud is a major problem. And they do so, and they even advocate it openly with impunity. And see, apparently, nothing wrong with committing election fraud. And I think that's a serious uh, problem. Uh, no, I don't. I don't think it's a serious problem. It, it is a serious problem. Why equivocate about that? It is a serious problem, and it undermines the integrity of our political process of our society. Uh, to have one side cheating, they know what the rules are. They haven't changed the rules. They just are flaunting them and pretending that the rules don't apply to them, and then being extremely strict with the other side. Uh, even, uh, not strict, that's not the right word either, accusing the other side of foul play, even where there is none. And it just, it leads me to wonder, you know, it, here we had the election, and there were all these reports coming in of machines missing or not working properly or you know, bags and bags of votes that weren't being counted or some that were suddenly mysteriously found when they did the recount. Oh, where'd these come from? Interesting. Oh, now it looks like the, the Republican is no longer winning this race. Hmm, interesting. And it looks like the Democrats control this uh, <laughs> voting uh, polling place and, and they're in charge of the recount. What are the odds of that? Uh, what a coincidence. The Republicans are doing what about it? Uh, you know, I hear complaints, there's whining, but what, practically speaking, is done about it? Nothing. Uh, nothing is being done about it. If they commit fraud, I don't see anybody going to jail. I don't see anybody losing their job. Uh, maybe I'm missing it. Maybe I just am not closely enough watching and reading and listening, but the Democrats are on the offense. Republicans are always playing defense. They just whine about it. And 
if the Democrats steal an election, the Republicans are, well, hey, what do you do? And it's almost as if the Republicans don't want to win. You know, apparently the Democrats, uh, I mean, you can knock them for cheating, but you can at least say, hey, they care enough about winning that they're willing to cheat. Um, but as far as the Republicans go, is there a desire to be the underdog? Is there a fear of actually being in charge? Is that is that systemic or uh, not systemic? That's not the word. Is that uh, inherent <clears throat> to conservatism in Republicans? You know, this apprehension about being in charge. Uh, to where if the if the Democrats if they can at least feel like hey we gave it our best shot we gave it a go and uh, and they got us Ugh. you know is there a sense in which they maybe are relieved because there's you know in inherent to conservatism this apprehension about being in charge being in power and they say well okay cool let them have it and we'll just be the underdogs again. We'll cut it close. We'll keep things in tension and, and balance and whatever. Um, I think far too often conservatives are thinking, you know what? I just I'm not going to get involved in politics because, you know, the government should be small. And if I'm in it too, then it's bigger. You know, if more conservatives are in politics, then it's just bigger. That's a bigger problem. Um, you know. It, I think conservatism is at a natural disadvantage in that way. Uh, and this is me thinking out loud. I could be wrong, but this is this is my theory on it right now. Uh, conservatism lacks the, the ambition that's natural to Democrats. Uh, and that ambition means that the conservatives typically don't have sufficient power to be able to check the corruption. And so it becomes this uh, self-defeating philosophy in some respect, uh, where instead of saying, you know what, we need enough power to be able to check this corruption, they just, you know, the, the really diehard purists, supposedly, say, you know what, fine, you know, we'll just go live our private lives and let them run the country into the ground and we'll complain we'll whine about it. But you couldn't ever actually put us in charge because we're not willing to govern. We're not willing to hold people accountable and do justice. You know, it, <clears throat> I think it might be similar to the squeamishness about hunting and butchery. You know, where if I am looking at a deer and I'm thinking, hmm, I could shoot it, but then I'm going to have to field dress it, then I'm going to have to drag it out of here, then I'm going to have to take it home and hang it up and quarter it and butcher it and bone it out and all that. You know, if I start thinking about all that stuff when I'm supposed to be taking a shot, man, it's going to be a lot of work after I shoot. Be a lot of hard work. I don't know if I really want to do that hard work. That deer, in the amount of time that I'm dithering, is going to walk right over the hill and out of sight. And I think that's what the Republicans do. 
they say yeah, it would be a lot of work. And, and the, the Democrats have become so entrenched and so vicious and so dishonest and so corrupt that it's just a bigger and bigger and bigger problem the longer it goes on. And the Republicans don't want to put in the work of cleaning it up. But if you want a smaller government, if you want greater liberty, more self-government, if you want to have a nation of laws, republicanism, a republic, if you want to have it and to keep it, you're going to have to get your hands dirty, roll up your sleeves, and be willing to work hard. You just, you just are. There's no two ways about it. I think, and and I, you know, I think conservatives are much, much more likely to be hunters and ranchers, and to be people that are willing to work hard and roll up their sleeves. And maybe that's part of it too. You know, you know, if the Democrats are always looking for handouts, and you know, it's like. And if you're living off the state and you don't work an honest day in your life, then, yeah, you probably have lots of energy to fight Republicans and to keep them out of power. Republicans, meanwhile, are thinking, I've got a nine to five. I don't have time for this. Fine, whatever. Run the country into the ground. I got to go to work. You know, I, I think that's part of it, too. But even there, I mean, it's as with... Uh, Running into that deer, it's regrettable, it's not ideal, but God willing, we'll live and do this or that. Uh, I think more Republicans, more conservatives need to approach uh, the smaller government uh, reigning in the progressives. They need to approach that. Uh, by, if not themselves, adopting the mindset of a of a hunter, uh, you know the hey, what needs to be done? We need to put some meat on the table, um, yeah, but also advocating that, uh, you know, to to let the Democrats take over the education system and take over media uh, is just a is a, a terrible mistake. That should have never been made. Conservatives, they might say, well, I don't want to be in charge of the education system. Fine, let the Democrats do it. No, what are you thinking? Really short-sighted of you. Educate your children at home. Do it yourself. Become independent. And by that I mean do not depend on the progressives because the more that you depend on them, the more addicted you will be to them having the power that allows them to uh, sabotage America. In our case, this is our country. This is where we live. This is our home. Don't go messing it up. You know, I hope to instill in my sons uh, a lack of squeamishness for what needs to be done. You know, where there should be caution be cautious. Uh, be prudent. You know, when I am uh, stalking a deer, I don't go whistling 
and yelling and hollering and just, you know, crashing through the bush. Hey, step lightly so as not to spook the deer. I whisper. But when it's time to take the shot, then, then I don't silence my gun. I don't shush. When it's time to shoot, it's time to shoot. Um, I use that as a metaphor in this case for doing anything difficult. When it's time to make a decision, it's time to make a decision. I don't want my sons to be weak or limp-wristed. Uh, I don't want them either to be uh, bullies. But strength doesn't mean uh, oppression. And in fact, strength is uh, necessary all the more to safeguard against oppression. I think of a conversation that I had, I alluded to in my last podcast episode, where we were talking about how the Democrats perceive the world by dividing everyone into the oppressors and the oppressed. If you're not a victim, then you're a victimizer. You're a bully. Only two camps. And so from that mindset, if I say, well, I want my sons to be strong. I want them to be assertive. I want them to be capable. I want them to be independent. Oh, then you mean you want them to be the oppressors? No, I don't. I want them to be safeguards against oppressors. Who give uh, tyrants pause. And would-be tyrants rethink their plans when my sons step into the equation. That's what I want. But you don't get tyrants anything but bolder when... Men are weak. That invites plunder, invites predation. Now you think about a herd of bison and a pack of wolves. And the pack of wolves will go after the weakest member. And what happens if all of the herd is too weak? All of the herd is spooked easily and runs off over the next hill. Um, the wolves take their pick. Wolves get fat and they reproduce and they get to be more and more wolves. But if the bison circle their wagons, they protect their weak. And if the bison are strong and they're assertive, and they stand their ground. God gave them hooves and horns and a lot of weight. You can starve out the wolves if you are diligent. Chase them off. Send them running. You know, someone could say, well, that's not the way it's supposed to be. You know, Jesus is peace, peace, peace. If you read the Bible from cover to cover, you see that it started out good and then sin. And now we live in a sinful fallen world. And we have to reckon with it. It's a messy business. Uh, that doesn't mean you repay evil for evil. Fight fire with fire in terms of doing bad things to survive. But 
from God we get our standard of good and evil, what is right, what isn't. Micah 6.8, we read, He's shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I think, too, uh, this is the last last point that I'll make. Uh, circling back to hunting for just a second. Yeah, I was talking with my friend Jeff Jorgensen. We went elk hunting up by Fort Peck. He drew a bull tag for elk this year, and I went out last Saturday with him and uh, tracked one for about two hours through the snow. It was beautiful. It was really, really cool. It was windy and uncomfortable in that regard, but it was beautiful out there. It's the first time I'd ever been up there hunting, and uh, we came across uh, tracks, and we tracked this animal. And it was very exciting. And over any hill or around any bush or in any bush, that elk, that bull elk might have been uh, close enough that we could have shot him, brought him home. But we didn't. And he eluded us. And uh, we left empty-handed. But while we were out there, we were talking about uh, some mutual friends of ours that are, uh, well, I guess you could say, the more hipster, hippie-type uh, people into organic food and uh, essential oils and whatnot. And to be clear, I am not opposed to those things. My Jeff, my my friend Jeff is. He, he spits <laughs> when. He hears the word organic anything, and I like to rib him about it. But uh, my dad was an organic farmer when I was growing up. And, you know, if we could afford to eat organic food, we would. That's why I hunt, too, is I think it's, you know, good organic meat, uh, grass-fed, all that. No antibiotics, preservatives, whatnot. But, uh, you know, this uh, mentality, I guess, is held by some of our mutual friends where they've done this Daniel diet where there's no meat. It's just uh, legumes and water because that's what Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ate when they were in uh, the court at Babylon, in, in exiles in captivity. Uh, they didn't want to eat the king's food because uh, it wasn't kosher. It was not in accordance with the laws uh, for diet that God had given to the people of Israel. He told them not to eat certain things, and uh, the king didn't have any regard for that. He ate whatever he wanted and everything. And and these young men wanted to honor God and obey his commands. And so they said, well, just give us beans and vegetables and water. We'll see how we do. And they did well. And so now that's a fad diet that some Christians get into. And they think, I th not all of them, but I think some of them believe they're holier for it. And uh, it's important to note, it's not a command. Um, you know, you read Genesis 9. Uh, verses 1 through 6, you could even throw in verse 7 for good measure. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is the blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it, and for man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, shall his blood be shed. 
For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. That command right there, that last one, verse 7, God gives uh, several times throughout the scriptures, several times throughout Genesis. He repeats it. I, hey, I want you guys to have lots of kids spread out. And uh, it's been joked before to Lauren and I that uh, that's our life verse. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that. I'd say most people disregard it. And we're trying to be faithful, but uh, whatever. God willing, we'll live and do this or that. With that, I conclude this episode of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, if you have anything to share regarding hunting and uh, butchery and uh, eating animals and squeamishness and the state of uh, manhood, uh, by all means, reach out. Find me on social media. Email me at garrettmullet at gmail.com. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-M-U-L-L-E-T at gmail.com. Hit me up. Let me know what you think. Uh, feel free to share this podcast episode if you've enjoyed it. And uh, tune in next episode. and We'll talk about some random thing that I'll decide at that time. And uh, thank you for listening. God bless.